This is episode number 12 of the Individual One Podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media has completely lost their mind. They cannot be objective. And the conservative as I refer to them now, state-run media has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. We hope you've enjoyed the first 11 episodes of the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. We've got over 11,000 Twitter followers already at our handle, which is at individual, the number one pod. That's individual one pod. And we're going to start today's program a little bit differently with a guest who fits perfectly, and I mean perfectly, into the way we introduce the show, which is that the left-wing media can't be trusted, the right-wing media is co-opted, and our guest, Bernard Goldberg, fits right in, the, right in that wheelhouse. Uh, for 28 years, he was a news reporter at CBS, which put him in a very weird spot because he's a, a, a conservative. I don't know if he's a hardcore conservative, but he's certainly right of center. But uh, at CBS News, he, he might as well have been as right wing as they get because they're all, they were all lefties, especially then during his 28 years there. He was also a Fox News contributor for 10 years. You probably have also seen him on HBO's Real Sports or read some of his books, many of which have dealt with media bias. And he most recently made news because he is no longer at Fox News. And one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to Bernard today is that he recently announced and made news by uh, saying that he is no longer a contributor at Fox News. And we wanted to find out the story behind that because it directly involves Donald Trump. Bernard Goldberg, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure, John. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, many reasons I wanted to talk to you, Bernard, but uh, the primary one was that you wrote a, uh, a blog post uh, making it official that you have been dropped as a Fox News contributor after 10 years, uh, a very primary uh, voice on the on the news channel, especially on the Bill O'Reilly program for a very long time. And uh, could you just explain for people who didn't see that why that decision was made, in your opinion? Yeah. First, it was uh, the blog post you're referring to was at my website, BernardGoldberg.com. And I want to make very clear, I have not lost one second's worth of sleep not being on Fox. <laughs> uh, I, I was a regular, and uh, suddenly I became a, a, a non-person. And I called the vice president at Fox, and I said, look, I don't need your money, and I don't need your airtime, but I am curious. Why am I not on? So she said, let me get back to you. I'll check. She got back to me and said, I was on a morning show. After O'Reilly, I was on a morning show on Friday mornings on Fox. She said, they love you, but they want you just for the right story. Well, I wrote a book called Bias. It, let's assume I know nothing about anything other than the media. I do know something about how the media operate behind the scenes. And they didn't even call me to talk about bias in the news. They called me about nothing. So I said to the vice president, I said, I have a theory. My theory is that Fox will accept anti-Trump comments from liberals, but not from conservatives. And I think that's why I'm not on it. She said, well, I don't know anything about that. Maybe she doesn't. 
but that that's my theory that in 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 the current state of media that we exist in uh cable news especially is not a journalist model it's a business model and the business model dictates that you give the audience what it wants if they want Trump is wonderful you give them Trump is wonderful if they want Trump is a monster you give them Trump is a monster I was a problem because I'm not an ideologue. Sometimes I would defend Donald Trump against unfair criticism of him, and sometimes I would criticize him for his petty, dishonest behavior. That did, that doesn't work these days on cable television. Now, Bernie, just before we get into the some of the things you just said there, all, almost all of which I agree with, I want to get a couple more facts. So for a period of time, you were still being paid by Fox News Channel to be a contributor, but not being put on the air can you do you know how no, long no, no that's not true okay uh I, I only got paid when i was on the air so i could have been paid a substantial amount of money if only i would be more complimentary of donald trump now they i want to make very very clear fox never ever ever told me what to say Right. But every time I said something negative about Donald Trump, social media would light up in a negative way. And it was, it's again, my theory that the producers and the executives in the front office figured, why do, why do we need an angry audience? That's not good for, for our business. Right. So I, I, in effect, said, I don't care about your money. I'm saying you're asking me a question. I'm going to answer it honestly. And if that honest answer doesn't please your audience, too bad. And, and, and as a result of that, I believe, I was just not called. But please, one more time, I have not lost any <laughs> sleep over this. Well, good. Uh, and, and, and you shouldn't. But, but I find that fascinating. I didn't realize that. So you were under contract, but you only got paid per appearance. So effectively, it's, it's run on like this uh, you know, a system where you're incentivized to provide them the content they want. Is that a fair assessment? It really is, yeah. Okay, so so you were under contract. That I thought you were being paid, uh, you know, a salary, if you were, but you're being paid per appearance, and you you knowingly decided I'm going to stick to what I believe. I'm not going to provide you with just whatever it is you want to hear. Fair? Exactly. Exactly. I say exactly. I just, but I do want to make clear that they never said to me, "You have to say this or you have to right. say that." No, I get they it. Never did. But they don't need to, <laughs> right? I mean, you're you're a smart guy. People understand when you. I mean, look, I've done a lot of television. I, I, you know, inherently what the producers want, what they don't want, and what's going to get you called back, and what's not going to get you called back. And on Trump, being pro-Trump is going to get you called back. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Now, just to be one more uh, factual question, obviously there are going to be some people who say, well, wait a minute, Bernard Goldberg was very associated with Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly was the king of Fox for a long time. The king gets ousted. Don't the subjects go with him? Well, what would you yeah, say to that? That's true. That's true. It, my theory about why I'm not on Fox is, is, is a, a reflection of the show that I was on after O'Reilly. When O'Reilly went, when the king got, got thrown out, uh, a lot of people associated with the king also became persona non grata. That's absolutely true, John. So, so that was step one. But then I was picked up by a morning show, uh, 
anchored by a, a fellow named Bill Hemmer. Uh, they liked my appearances. I was on all the time, uh, you know, one every Friday morning. And then I just wasn't on anymore. So even though the trouble started when O'Reilly left, and, and, and a lot of people associated with O'Reilly, in effect, left with him, uh, I was still on Fox television. And I was on Fox Television as a regular uh, on that Friday morning show. Uh, so something happened after O'Reilly. And, and again, my theory is what happened was I was offending too much of the audience, and they reflected that uh, on Twitter and Facebook or wherever. I, I'm not a social media person, but I know they, I know social media lit up in a negative way about me. And again, my theory that the producers and management said we don't need this. Now, Bernard, one of the many reasons you fascinate me is that well, partially we have a lot in common. Uh, you, I'm more conservative than you are. I consider you to be kind of a, a common sense moderate. Would that be fair uh, assessment of you, do you think? A common sense moderate on the conservative side. Yeah. Okay. I'm but, not a middle of the road. I, I, I have conservative values. There's no way in the world I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Kamala Harris or any of those people. Right. So I'm a conservative, but I'm not a right-wing conservative. Right, but obviously having worked for CBS News for 28 years, you probably felt like you were a right-wing conservative in, in, in comparison. Everything, everything's relative, so yeah. Right, right. But, but by, going back to my point where, you know, I we're, we're both conservatives who rail against liberal media bias at different times in our career. That's been a huge part of my persona, a huge part of yours. You wrote the book Bias. In fact, I think you wrote two books about uh, media bias specifically. Uh, and and now you're a conservative railing against what I refer to as state-run media bias, against the, the, the con- so-called conservative media. Are, are we men without a country now, Bernie? Well, if we are, I don't care. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this polarization and I'm tired of this, you must appeal to, to, to the uh, particular audience. You know, I, I'm just tired of that. So we may be. But uh, if I could immodestly, immodestly say, when I was at CBS, as you pointed out, I wrote about liberal bias in the news at CBS in the Wall Street Journal, and the, which touched off the media version of World War III, by the way. Right. And when I was at Fox, I continued to say, I'm against bias in the news mm-hmm. against bias whether it's liberal bias or conservative bias so i think it took and, and i don't feel totally comfortable saying this john but it took a certain amount of courage i think to criticize liberals at C, uh, cbs and conservatives at fox right. but that's what i did and and in my in in the in the piece you're talking about the column that i wrote on my website i reveal for the first time a, an email exchange between me and roger ale the late Roger And in it, I said, look, I want to make sure we're on the same page here. This is how I view my job. I'm not an ideologue. I'm going to criticize liberals when I think they deserve it, but I need to criticize conservatives when they deserve it. And Ailes wrote back to me saying, say whatever you want. He said, I believe in free speech. Uh, And the the, the exchange is in that column on my website. Now, Bernard, I just referred to, and I do often, Fox News Channel, and it's not 100%, but at least 90 to 95% of it is so pro-Trump that I refer to it as state-run media. Do you think that assessment is fair? In the opinion part of Fox, 
fuck gets a bad rap overall because because you're absolutely right about the opinion part of us. But the the news correspondent, I'll give you one example. The White House correspondent for Fox News is a fellow named John Roberts. He's the chief White House correspondent. I have no idea of how he feels about Donald Trump. I have no idea of what his politics are. I'll go over to CNN. Their chief White House correspondent is, is somebody named John, uh, Jim Acosta. <laughs> Jim Acosta is a journalistic disgrace. Uh, he crosses the line every time he opens his mouth. It, should, it would never be tolerated at CBS News or at Fox News. And yet, uh, you know, he does that. So... So I would say that Fox is way too cozy with uh, the president of the United States. But that's in the opinion show, not the hard news show. Now, currently, uh, two Fox personalities, Tucker Carlson and Janine Pirro, are involved in pretty big controversies that, you know, the liberals think that uh, they're somehow going to damage them. It's my view that we no longer live in a broadcasting era. It's a narrow casting era. And so, therefore, it's very unlikely that either of these personalities will be harmed because the only thing that could harm them is saying something bad about Donald Trump and offending their core audience. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. And what does that say about broadcasting? It, it, well, you're right. It's narrow cast. It, you can make a lot of money in cable television with having a, a number of... Look, I've had more people at my bar mitzvah than, a lot, than watch a lot of cable television. <laughs> uh, but, but they could still make money doing that because they make money from advertising and they make money from subscription fees that they charge you know, to, uh, to run their... Uh, their, their product on what, whatever the, the, the cable or satellite or whatever it is. So the name of the game is appeal to your customers. Now look, I'm a capitalist. I'm a businessman. If you're building cars, you should appeal to your customers. If they want SUVs and not little sports cars, build SUVs. If you're in, in the pocketbook business, find out what kind of pocketbooks women want and make that kind of pocketbook. If you're building houses and people want two-story houses, build two-story houses. It would be business malpractice if you didn't listen to your customers. But news is different. News is the one business you don't pander to your customers. But that's precisely, John, precisely what's going on today. And it's happening because the business model is broken. That's what happened. I mean, right? Do you agree with that? How do you mean that? What I mean by that is that a television station, a radio station, a newspaper used to be a license to print money. And so, therefore, they didn't need to pander to any core audience. That's all changed now because of fragmentation. And because of right. – and because right. so you see where I'm going with that. Yeah, yeah, the balkanization of the media. You know, it's, once upon a time, there were three places to get national and international news on TV. Uh, you know, now you can get it on the three old networks. You can get it on cable. I can get news on my on my shoe. I mean, you know, I, I can get I can get news on my underwear. I mean, you can get news <laughs> every place. You right. Know, you know what I mean? So, so the balkanization or the fractionalization of news means everybody's making less money. So you have to figure out a way to hold on to an audience. Which is... When which... you hold on to an audience, at least in cable TV, and I would argue not just in cable TV, but, but even at the New York Times, the, the same did New York Times, is you find out what your audience wants. 
Mm-hmm. You give them what they want. Bingo. You validate their bias. Yep. And you get them coming back for more. Amen, brother. Um, a couple of real quick questions because you're singing my tune here. One of the things that conflicts me most about Donald Trump, in fact, it's classic Trump, is his uh, fake news crusade. And I believe that a lot of the mainstream news media and, and, and even the non-mainstream news media is fake these days to some degree. Not in a conspiratorial way, just because of some of the things we've already talked about. But Donald Trump uses fake news as a weapon to discredit stories that he doesn't like that are probably true about him. Is that, a, is, there, is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely a fair assessment. Look, there's a difference between getting a story wrong and fake news. He says people make up sources. That 99.99% of the time does not happen. What Donald Trump calls fake news is negative news about him. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He does this to, so that whenever a, a negative story comes out about him, you have to wonder, is this fake news, made-up news, or is it just a negative story about Donald Trump? It's a very cynical approach, and it's, it's very bad for the culture and for a democratic society. I couldn't agree with that more. And I think it's been very, very effective, especially when it comes to the Mueller investigation. I think Mueller could have a nuclear bomb, which, by the way, I don't think he has. And it would not matter because to his base, it'll all be fake news. Fox News Channel, uh, unlike, you know, with Richard Nixon, there was no Fox News Channel. There was no conservative talk radio. No matter what happens, they will be able to prop him up because they're invested in him and and he will be able to survive anything. What do you make of that assessment? Yeah, I, I do think that a lot of the media, the so-called mainstream media, is out to get Donald Trump. I think, for instance, the New York Times, where a lot of other news organizations take their cues from the New York Times, especially television. Correct. Uh, so I think the New York Times feels, putting this word in quotation marks, responsible in a negative way, responsible, guilty would be a better word, for the election of Donald Trump. And I think their, their subscription base, the people who, who read the core, core audience, who read the New York Times, was very unhappy that Donald Trump got elected. And I think a lot of them blame the New York Times. If they were only tougher on Donald Trump or easier on Hillary Clinton, that idiot Donald Trump, as they would put it, would never have gotten elected. So I think the New York Times is, is doing a mea culpa. I think they're making up for that now. And the way they make up for it, even Jill Abramson, the former executive editor of the Times, says they run headlines that are designed to appeal to the, the core audience of the New York Times, the liberals who read the New York Times. So I think a lot of the a lot of the mainstream media has crossed the line and are out to get Donald Trump. That's not good. But I think Donald Trump brings a lot of this on himself. And I think, as you correctly said, in my view, as you correctly said, he uses the term fake news to to make you not sure about any news that's not good about him. Bernard, uh, last uh, substantive question, and I'll ask what's up next for you. And, and that is, it's my fervent belief, having been in various aspects, various aspects of the media for, for 30 years, 
that the entire industry is broken. It's fundamentally broken. It's not just the business model that it's garbage in, garbage out. Uh, there's, we could talk for hours about why that is. But isn't the election of Donald Trump as president the ultimate proof that the media is broken? I mean, you just mentioned that it was liberal sources in the media that effectively enabled him to get through the Republican primary, and all because they thought he was good business. Isn't Trump's election the ultimate proof that the media in general, the news media, is broken fundamentally? Uh, uh, that's a very big question. Let let me answer it. Let me answer it in, in a different way than you probably intended, and I apologize for that. That's all right. I have said in the past that I I have met in my life people who work the overnight shift at Seven Eleven selling Marlboros and Slurpees to insomniacs who have more introspection than a lot of journalists I know. <laughs> so. If you're, so if journalists aren't going to be introspective, if whenever you criticize them, instead of taking the criticism seriously, they circle the wagon, they not only lose faith among conservatives, which they've successfully done. Conservatives just don't believe anything the media says. They've lost faith among independents and to, to a large degree among Democrats, too. If, if, if that is a definition of broken, yeah, it's broken. And let me say one other thing before we go, John, on a, on a totally different subject. I have a column up on my website right now about Hollywood. It's the headline is Hollywood, especially in the age of Trump. I mean, a lot of people know that Hollywood is a liberal institution. But but I've, I've been hanging around Hollywood for a, a little while now. I, I live back east, but I've been hanging out here this winter, and it's a— uh, it's a column you might anybody interested in, in how in how much of a bubble Hollywood is might be interested in the column. Oh, I saw it. It's good. I recommend it. And, and there's no question Hollywood's broken, too. I mean, no one's saying Hollywood isn't broken. In fact, I think virtually every aspect of the media, not just the news media, but I used to think the news media was a little bit better than that. Uh, I no longer do. I mean, it's effectively the same thing as Hollywood. They're just generating narratives that they think will be hits. I mean, it's the same thing as Hollywood, isn't it? Well, yeah, but if you're a business, if you're in business, you want to generate hits. So I don't care if Hollywood, uh, put, you know, holds its finger up to the wind and says people want comedies, do comedies. If they want musicals, you know, back in the fifties, do musicals. If they do whatever they, you know, I don't care about that. News is just different, in my view. News is different from everything. You can't have a free country without a free press, but you can't have a free country for long without a fair press. And that's why, while everybody else can can find out what what the business model is, what the audience wants, and give them what they want, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem when news people do it. Because if you're a Trump fan, you need to know the negative things about Donald Trump also. And if you're watching CNN, you need to hear about the positive things every now and then about Donald Trump. But that's not how it works. Not not by and large, that's not how it works. I agree with that totally. So you mentioned you've been here in Los Angeles. Boy, you picked a bad winner to be in Los Angeles. Uh, you get te- uh, bulletin, you tell me about that. I mean, the reason I came out here was to get away from the winter, and I picked, like, the worst winter in decades. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's global warming, uh, Bernie. I mean, it's I mean, uh, and, and, you know, we got permanent drought now in California, which is why we have no drought anywhere in the entire state as officially of last week. But anyway, my point is you're, you're leaving Southern California. So what's next for Bernard Goldberg? Well, I'm I'm a, I'm I'm on a show on HBO called Real Sports, which right. is a, uh, even even though the, the word sports is in the title, it, you don't have to be a sports fan to, to like the show. It's like it's sixty minutes. It's it's as good as sixty minutes actually. Uh, so I do that, and I write uh, for my uh, for my website, which I'll repeat again is BernardGoldberg.com, and uh, I try to write about the media and politics and what's going on in America. Well, Bernie, I appreciate your time, and I'm going to make you this pledge. Uh, you know, you and I have been in touch for a long time. I don't even know if you know that, but I, I've interviewed you many years ago. Uh, bef- I know. I do, uh, I do remember that. Okay, well, I'm going, to make, I'm going to make a pledge that before you retire, I'm going to get you to on Real Sports on HBO to revisit the Penn State Joe Paterno case. That is my quest in life. Uh, you're not going to do it now, but you will eventually revisit it because it's the most amazing story never told. I can promise you that. Don't don't promise because you may you may have the wrong guy to to, to go for that story. Well, I, I get it. I hear you, but I I'm, I I respect your work and I appreciate your time. And uh, please keep doing what you're doing. Thanks a lot, John. That's uh, Bernard Goldberg, a former. Uh, Fox News contributor and longtime uh, news media critic, former uh, CBS News reporter for 28 years, and you can catch him on Real Sports and at BernardGoldberg.com. So the second half of the uh, podcast will be now devoted to the news of the day, and as is always the case with Donald Trump, there is plenty to talk about. You would think that his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, being sentenced to another 43 months in prison... (laughs) For a total of 90 months in prison for conspiracy and fraud charges, some of which he was convicted of by a jury, others of which he pled guilty to, would be a massive story. I mean, he's going to go to prison for about seven years, give or take, which there's a pretty darn good chance, given his age, would mean he's going to die in prison. Not 100% sure, but it's certainly a decent possibility that that's going to happen. Uh, Correct. And so the, the, this, you would think, would be a massive story we would be talking about forever. But in the, the world of Donald Trump, by you know tomorrow, this will be old news. Uh, and somehow Trump has, at least with his base of support, been able to pretend that uh, Paul Manafort was not a big deal. I mean, Paul Manafort was his campaign chairman at a critical time during the Republican primary process. Paul Manafort was there at the critical Trump Tower meeting in New York that Trump denies ludicrously having any knowledge of between uh, Jared Kushner and uh, Donald Trump Jr. um, and uh, and the Russian operatives who were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. Now, to be clear, there is no charge involving conspiracy with Russia to uh, collude and to influence the election. That has always been an element of this that I have found to be very troubling for those people who have bought into the full-on collusion theory. I am not in that category, never have been. I've always been very open-minded about it, but I've also been skeptical about it. People who know me know that uh, bizarrely, a few months ago, Donald Trump tweeted three times about an interview I did with Michael Isakov, author of the of Russian Roulette, poking holes in the Russian collusion theory. And to me, one of the the biggest data points is, well, wait a minute, if Paul Manafort wasn't involved directly in Russian collusion, or at least they couldn't prove it, how in the world 
are they ever going to prove that against anybody else? Because if there was Russian collusion, Paul Manafort would have been right at the heart of it. And yet there's no evidence of that yet. I mean, there's certainly a lot of smoke. There's a ton of smoke with regard to to uh, Manafort and Russia. And, uh, you know, we played before uh, Manafort's uh, amazing answer before the Republican convention in 2016 to CBS News's Nora O'Donnell, where he fumbles all over himself when trying to answer the question whether or not Donald Trump had any financial ties to Russian oligarchs, which was a flat out obvious attempt to lie. But that being said, when it comes to actual convictions, it's not there. But it's still very significant that the president of the United States, former campaign chairman, is going to prison for about seven years. And, you know, there, of course, there's been a lot of uh, speculation and some evidence that uh, Manafort has been hoping for a pardon from Donald Trump and that uh, Trump has effectively, uh, ta- you know, dangled a potential pardon for Manafort, if subtly, sometimes even publicly on Twitter. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, my guess is that Trump is going to hang him out to dry because <laughs> uh, at this point, there's no evidence that Manafort either has anything or if he does on Trump further with regard to Russian collusion, that he's willing to give it up for whatever reason. So uh, there's a very good chance the president of the United States, former campaign chairman, is going to die in prison. And if that happened with Hillary Clinton, the right wing media would be going bananas. They, they would be a constant 24 seven. Everything else, everything, this is the important part of this. Because of Manafort going to prison, if this happened in a Democratic administration, specifically Hillary Clinton's, the so-called conservative right-wing, now state-run media, would be presuming every other possible rumor, innuendo, implication, uh, smoke would be seen as fire. There would be no benefit of the doubt given. None. That would be proof that Trump is corrupt from the very top, that there's these connections to Russia, and that everything else that we know about this story would be seen in the worst possible and most sinister light. Would that be fair? No. But that's the way the conservative media would be portraying this, especially when it's not just Paul Manafort. It's also, obviously, Michael Flynn, who may not even be going to prison. We'll find out about that uh, soon. But his former national security advisor pled guilty to lying about his contact with the Russian ambassador. Uh, There's many other indictments and convictions involving this uh, so-called witch hunt. It's not a witch hunt. That doesn't mean it's going to prove collusion. See, those both those things can be true. Not a witch hunt and also not being able to prove collusion. Correct. And I think that's probably where we are on this. Um, but the Paul Manafort uh, sentencing is, is really indicative of so many things, including our utter desensitization to the insanity that is the presidency of Donald Trump. Now, as far as where this all goes, we have focused a lot on this podcast, the Individual One podcast, because of the name. Obviously, that relates to you know, Michael Cohen and his testimony and the reference to Donald Trump as individual one in the uh, indictment in the Southern District of New York regarding the hush payments uh, in the 2016 election. We have focused a lot on is Donald Trump going to be impeached and what will happen if, in fact, he is. And it it has been my view since very early on in the Trump presidency, even before Mueller was named, that Trump would eventually be impeached, not removed, 
It's important to point that out. Most people don't understand this process. I'm not even sure Donald Trump understands this process. But there is the impeachment in the House. That's an indictment. It would then go to the Senate if that passed. And then the Senate, being run by Mitch McConnell, who's running for re-election in Kentucky, a place where Donald Trump is very popular next year, it probably dies. I'm not even, I don't even know 100% whether they would even have a trial, depending on the nature of the allegations and the, the substance of the factual record behind it. And depending on what Robert Mueller did with the final nature of his report. But there's very little, if any chance, given the political realities as they currently exist, that Donald Trump would be removed. And this week, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and Adam Schiff, who is one of the lead investigators in the House on this entire Russian issue, both made statements that were slightly different. But the, the essence of what they said is that we may not impeach Donald Trump. And Nancy Pelosi actually said Donald Trump isn't worth impeaching. Correct. Which, uh, you know, I was I was like, okay, I get where she's going. She's trying to diminish him. That politically, I think, is a potent way to do this, that most people have not gone in that direction. I think it's been a mistake by Democrats. They've always tried to make Trump into this big, bad boogie monster, this tyrant, this Hitler wannabe. Well, that doesn't work because his supporters and those even who are soft supporters are never going to see him as Hitler. And you're making him seem strong. And they like the fact that he's a strong leader. I've always felt that the way you go after Trump is by making him seem weak, impotent, a con man, a joke. That's the way you should go with Donald Trump. And that seems to be where Nancy Pelosi's going. Oh, he's not even worth impeaching. And both Schiff and Pelosi, it should be noted, left open a lot of room that should uh, Mueller come through with uh, further evidence or more allegations or more substantiation for what we think we already know, that that could change. But that right now, there is no plan to impeach, and they may not impeach. And I got very agitated about this because, one, I, I don't like the philosophy of the argument. The philosophy of the argument seems to be, well, he can't be removed, so therefore, why even bother trying? And, and, there, and also, you know, he's just such a buffoon, he's not even worth impeaching. That is incredibly short-sighted and seems to me as if the Democrats are going to take the easy, politically expedient way out of this which is, you know what, we're just going to investigate the hell out of him. We're never actually going to impeach. And then going into next year, which is obviously a presidential election year, we're just going to use all this to beat him in an election so that we can take over the White House and, and do really well on the congressional side because we're going gonna, we're gonna to just make every Republican, we're going to tie him to Trump and make them seem all uh, scandal-ridden and corrupt. Politically, that might be the best strategy. Uh, but that is not what is best for the country. And I have been very outspoken. And in fact, my, my good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, we did an interview with him. I believe it was episode number five of the Individual One podcast. I urge you to check it out because I have been lobbying him both during interviews and in, in our uh, you know social time that he uh, and the rest of his uh, friends in the Democratic House caucus have to understand this is not just about what happens this year or next year that we're talking about the future of the country here. And my greatest concern about all this is if Donald Trump is not impeached, 
for having clearly committed high crimes and misdemeanors. It is obvious that he has obstructed justice on in multiple ways on a weekly basis, a weekly basis, especially with regard to the Russian investigation. There, by his own words, he has obstructed justice for the reasons that he fired James Comey as FBI director. But that's not even the that's not even the I mean, it might be the tip of the iceberg, but not much more than the tip of the iceberg of the obstruction charge against Donald Trump. He is also in constant every single day violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. That's not even in debate among serious people. And, and that's the best case scenario. That's without Mueller really coming forward with any new information. So if he's allowed to do that in the way that he has, without even getting the historical black mark of impeachment on his record, then what happens in the future? What happens when a real tyrant, not a buffoon, a real tyrant comes down the pike and we can't stop him because of the precedent that has been set because Donald Trump did X, Y, and Z, and he wasn't even impeached by a Democratic House. The opposing party held the House of Representatives, and they didn't even indict him for these things. That means that future tyrant is going to be able to drive a Mack truck through the loopholes of that precedent that is being set, if that's what ends up happening here. And the idea that somehow, well, it's not worth it because Republicans will never force him out— that's the heckler's veto, folks. Heckler's veto used to be a thing that you know people realized was invalid. You know, well, you can't do it because you know the minority is going to scream and yell so much that you know they're going to make it impossible to happen. Well, what, at the very least, force Republicans to stand up for Donald Trump and show how what utter hypocrites they are after the same party and some of the same people impeached Bill Clinton. I believe rightly and validly, but for subject on a subject matter that was far, far, far less serious than we're talking about here. So, And by the way, I think politically, and I've told John Yarmouth this, Congressman Yarmouth this, and I think he agrees, that that is a potent weapon as well. You can use this you know, as a sledgehammer on a lot of people, including Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell voted in favor of Bill Clinton's conviction after he was impeached. And, and Mitch McConnell was a senator from Kentucky when that occurred over the whole Monica Lewinsky, Paula Jones situation. I, I mean, he's running for re-election. I realize it's Kentucky, but at least some people might go, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that, that's clearly hypocrisy because we're talking about much, much more serious issues, similar issues. We don't know for sure about perjury yet, but I, I'm guessing that Trump, even in his written answers after dodging an interview with Mueller, has committed perjury of some sort. But especially with regard to his knowledge or lack thereof of the infamous Trump Tower meeting, to which I've already referred. But the re- the reality is that there are political weapons here for the Democrats, and it is utter cowardice and enabling to say, ah, you know what? We just we can't win this fight. He can't be removed. So why bother? That's the coward's way out. And your job and John understands this. And he and I think he actually in, in this podcast and in, in episode number five, he gave me credit. I don't think I deserve it, but he gave me credit for having convinced him of this and that other people in his caucus were starting to believe the same thing, that there's a higher calling here. This is not just about the next election. This, I mean, if you can't impeach Donald Trump based upon what we already know, who are you ever going to impeach in the future? Nobody. Impeachment becomes invalid. 
And impeachment is potentially an incredibly important weapon against, for instance, a potential real tyrant in the future. We are set up for tyranny, in my opinion, this cult of personality that has taken over our politics. And to me, I think Trump is a dry run. I do not see Trump as a real tyrant figure. He's a fake uh, tyrant. He's a buffoon. He's a phony. He's a con man. But he has some of the same characteristics that might be and, and have manifest themselves in some acts that might be the type of thing that will occur in the future when a real tyrant tries to fundamentally change our system of government from a representative democracy to some semblance of a monarchy. We all know Trump, <laughs> Trump thinks of himself as a monarch. He's just not you know, proficient enough yet to make himself into one, but he's trying the national emergency on the border to get around the, the Congress that won't give him his funding for the wall is a perfect example of this. The Senate and House are still debating over how they're going to try to figure that out. I'll have a couple more thoughts on that in a, maybe in the moment. But uh, so I was I was beside myself when Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff uh, made these uh, these comments. And so I texted my friend John Yarmouth. I said, John, obviously, I'm furious. Uh, can you help me out here? And he said, well, interestingly, I just went on CNN on Aaron Burnett's show, and I said exactly what you, uh, you have always said. Uh, and so I, I went and found the clip, and sure enough, John had done that. So I felt a lot better. I thought, well, that's, that's a pretty good friend. So <laughs> if, he's, if he says, look, yeah, calm down, he basically told me, John, calm the hell down. Uh, and his basic statement on CNN was, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Donald Trump will be impeached. And John is the chairman of the budget committee. He's, he's not the speaker of the House, but he's a he's a top Democrat now. He has some say and he's very well respected within that caucus. And his his view is not uh, alone. He, he represents a lot of people within that caucus who do agree. Now, whether or not they're going to win the, the day, I don't know, because Nancy Pelosi is the final call on this. And it sure feels to me, it feels to me as if Nancy Pelosi is paving the way for a cop out on impeachment, that she, being a political operator, has realized that they will do better in the next election if they do not impeach, which I don't even agree with. I mean, the, the, the premise behind that is, well, we can't uh, impeach because look what happened with Bill Clinton. Again, the circumstances are very different, both the subject matter as well as the political realities. The political realities are that Donald Trump is far, far more personally unpopular than Bill Clinton was. It's not close. Think about it this way. Bill Clinton, because of what existed then, talk radio and then later Fox News Channel and the right-wing conspiracy against him, I would say 30, maybe 35% of the country really had a loathing for Bill Clinton. That's significant, but that's not enough in those days to carry the day. Today, I would suggest the numbers indicate that 52%, a solid 52% of the country, despises Donald Trump and will never support him no matter what. So, yeah, would his approval rating increase a point or two from people who just think that, you know, this is unseemly, we don't want to deal with this, this is, you know, this is more drama than we need or whatever, who knows? I mean, you know, just the natural inclination to rally around someone who's attacked? Yeah, sure. But what difference does it make? What difference does it make if he's at 42 or 44 or even 45? He's, he can't, you can't, and against a decent 
candidate, he can't win re-election with those numbers. Now, he can against a bad candidate, and there's plenty of bad candidates out there from the Democratic side that may end up handing Ronald, uh, Ronald, boy, that was a Freudian slip, Donald Trump uh, re-election. I mean, that is certainly possible. Correct. But the reality, the reality is that the circumstances are very different. And Democrats are making a huge mistake, both philosophically, I think even politically, if they don't understand those differences. And, and you know, I'll continue to lobby John on this. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how much uh, power he's going to have in lobbying anybody else within the caucus. But I feel very strongly about this. And, there, and it's, it's, it's frightening to me how few even anti-Trump conservatives seem to get this. I get a lot of blowback from anti-Trump conservatives on this issue. And I don't understand why. I mean, the, the symbolism of impeachment is incredibly important. Incredibly important. I, I have said to John, and I think this resonated with him, you can make a strong argument that if Bill Clinton had never been impeached, that Hillary Clinton probably would have been president one day. The, the black mark of that was powerful enough to put a stench on the Clinton name forever. And uh, and I think the same thing is, is true here with far more serious potential allegations against Donald Trump. And as far as what Robert Mueller is going to do, I, I continue to believe that Donald Trump has won the expectations game on the Robert Mueller investigation. I think that is becoming incredibly clear. And he may have done that by luck. He may have done that uh, by design, by putting the goalposts in a place where he knew Mueller could not reach them which is this whole full-on Russian collusion thing, and then anything that falls short of that is going to be seen as not that big of a deal, even though it is a big deal. But I also think that Mueller has become, in a, in a way, has become Donald Trump's best friend in all of this. Because let, let's imagine that if there was no Mueller investigation right now, I believe that if there was no Mueller investigation based purely on what we know from the Michael Cohen situation, both regarding the payoffs uh, of Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal during the 2016 election, the conspiracy with the National Enquirer, and Cohen, and it would need to be fleshed out, but Cohen's uh, uh, allegation that he was influenced into lying to Congress by Trump and Trump's lawyers over the timing of the Trump Moscow project, those two things alone and a, and a deep investigation of those two things likely would, would provide further allegations of abuse of power, potentially perjury, depending on, on how, uh, you know, where it all went. My, my, my point is that those two things alone, which we already know about, would have formed a legitimate impeachment process. And I truly believe that once Democrats took the House, that that impeachment process would have begun almost immediately based upon just that, plus the emoluments clause situation, which is doesn't get nearly enough attention. I mean, it's and it's swampy as hell, especially for a guy who who claimed constantly that he was going to drain the swamp, which was, of course, you know, just another. I mean, Trump is. You know, Trump has made the old swamp seem like uh, West Texas in August. I mean, that, that's how swampy he is. And the emoluments violations are as swampy as they get. So, but my point here is, we know all this without Mueller. But everyone's waiting because of the uh, emphasis and the focus on the Russian investigation and specifically collusion. And I'm not sure that that's ever going to be proven if ever even happened. But because everyone's waiting, everyone's, you know, keeping their powder dry, the calendar keeps moving. 
And now we're in a situation where expectations are out of the world. Anything short of proving that Trump is a Manchurian candidate, which I do not believe that he was or is for Russia, is going to be seen as a victory for Trump. And the timing now, it's getting too late. If it's not too late already, we're almost into the presidential campaign. I mean, almost all the Democratic candidates have announced uh, this uh, an impeachment process takes a very long time. You have to go through committees and uh, you can't do this in a couple of weeks. So this everyone waiting, everyone holding their fire until Mueller is done. And we still don't know when that's going to be. There's always rumors it's going to be oh next week, next month, whatever. It, it never seems to happen. Mueller is working to Trump's advantage, not on purpose. Not to mention that, you know, <laughs> The, the, the funniest thing that's going to happen once Mueller is done is that a guy who has been vilified on an almost daily basis by the president of the United States in a highly inappropriate and possibly illegal fashion, because when it's the president of the United States, I believe calling the investigation a witch hunt is obstruction of justice. It's part of the obstruction of justice allegation against Trump. But when it all is said and done, the funniest part of this is going to be after this guy has vilified Robert Mueller, an American hero and a lifelong Republican for well over a year, that when Mueller doesn't find collusion, he and his fans are going to champion his findings, which is just so classic of this bizarre world we live in where everything's upside down. So everything, I think, is working to Trump's advantage in staying in office. That doesn't mean that the factual record is going to be in his favor, but it's just, it's just amazing. And whether it's luck, whether it's street smarts, maybe it's a little bit of both, it certainly seems to me as if uh, Trump has all the cards here, even though the facts shouldn't dictate that. And it, there is one thing, though, that still makes me think, is it possible that Mueller really does have something bigger than we realize? Because... <laughs> And it's always hard to put yourself into Trump's brain because sometimes he's a moron and sometimes he's a savant. And and sometimes he's a moron savant in the very same sentence. But just to just over the last 24 hours, he's put out several tweets about the so-called Christopher Steele dossier. And there's, you know, Jim Jordan is all over the congressman from Ohio who I defended. I wish I had never, but I uh, was instrumental in, in debunking allegations against uh, Jim Jordan that he was somehow involved in a sex abuse cover up at Ohio State when he was a wrestling coach there many years ago. That was total baloney. But Jim Jordan is the biggest Donald Trump hack there is. And we saw it at the Michael Cohen hearings. Well, Jordan and others are now suddenly, you know, banging the drum on the Steele dossier and the Clinton campaign paid for it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why are they so afraid of the damn Steele dossier still? I mean, the Steele dossier has been largely unverified now and will never be verified, largely because a lot of it was about Michael Cohen and Michael Cohen himself has torpedoed it. For instance, he never went to Prague, which blows apart a huge portion of the Steele dossier. The Steele dossier, of course, with the infamous P-tape allegation against Trump, which will never be proven and probably isn't true. In fact, I think it's an urban legend that was concocted out of a very logical story that when some Russians took Trump to a Las Vegas strip club, there was a, a urination scene done by the strippers. I, that's my theory, Oxum's razor, that that story gets back to Russia, it gets bounced around and becomes urban legend and turns into a P-tape 
uh, for Christopher Steele. That doesn't mean, by the way, that Trump wasn't caught with prostitutes while in Moscow by by Russian intelligence. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But the, you know, the, the salacious allegation of the P-tape, I think, is probably an urban legend and we'll certainly never know for sure, because if it existed, we would never we would never see it. But the point of this is why the obsession still with the Steele dossier? Why? I mean, why, why are they so focused on making sure people don't want to believe the Steele dossier, that Hillary's people paid for it? As if, can we just be clear about two things? There's two things we need to be clear about with regard to the Steele dossier. Number one, there's zero evidence Steele had any idea who was paying for him. All right? And within that, it wasn't Hillary Clinton that was paying for him. It was the Democratic National Committee. And also, they stopped. I'm sorry, they picked up. They didn't start it. They, they picked this up. It was started by a conservative news outlet that was looking for dirt on Trump during the primaries. And it was only during the general election that the DNC picked up the funding. But there's zero evidence Steele had any idea who he was working for. That's number one. That's important. But more importantly than that, even if you don't want to believe any of that, just use your thinking cap for a half a second. If this was some sort of a, a massive conspiracy to create a mythical narrative about Donald Trump being in bed with the Russians, being a Manchurian candidate, that this was somehow going to be the way they would defeat him. Can you answer me this one question? Why did it not come out during the election? Can someone please answer that for me? Why did the Steele dossier not get revealed until well after Trump had won. And then, it, only then, it was revealed by BuzzFeed under great controversy. In fact, most of the media, and I was not one, I defended what they were doing because I think it was actually good for the country because if Russia does have, uh, you know, compromise on our president, that compromise loses its value if you expose it. So they were doing the country and the world a service. And it was relevant information. But the, my point on all this is, if this is some grand conspiracy, and this gets back to you know, this conspiracy theory that somehow the FBI was out to get Trump. So let's be clear. The Steele dossier never becomes public during the election. And 10 days before the election, James Comey, the director of the FBI, reopens the Hillary Clinton email investigation needlessly in a way that probably shifted the election to Donald Trump. How does that make any damn sense? He's making it up as he goes and not. That's what Trump's doing. Why? Well, there's fear there. Why is there fear there? That's the that's the lingering question I still have. That's what makes me still think I'm I'm not willing to put the the Russian investigation totally to bed yet, and that the Mueller's not going to come up with something we don't know that that's a big deal because there's too much fear. There's too much fear there that there shouldn't be. By all accounts, and, but of course, there's also, also the, always the possibility that Trump's just a moron and he loves fighting and that he loves his rubbing it in on Hillary. That's possible, too. He's very, very difficult to be able to interpret because he's not thinking like a normal human being, certainly not a normal president of the United States. Um, all right. A couple other quick notes before we end this edition of the podcast. I did, I did mention the emergency vote, which is supposed to happen uh, within the next day or two. I don't know what's going to happen with that. It certainly seems as if Republicans are trying to figure out a way where they can somehow vote for Trump's national emergency without it creating a 
a, a disastrous precedent the next time a Democrat takes office, which is just a joke. I mean, it, uh, I mean, all these supposed constitutional conservatives trying to rationalize why they're going to vote for a national emergency on the border when Donald Trump was president for two freaking years and never declared an emergency. If it's really an emergency, you have two years to declare it before you did this, over two years, and he never did. I mean, if, the, if, it's an, if there's nothing that's changed now to make it a national emergency in 2019 when it wasn't in 2017 when he took office. He himself has said he did this, you know, even though he didn't want to, he didn't need to. In his own words, much like when the Russian obstruction of justice allegations, his own words proved the case against him. But Republicans are desperately trying to rationalize because they don't want to vote against him on this. I don't know how it's going to turn out, uh, but it's 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 absurd. I mean, the whole thing is it's just flat out ridiculous because we shouldn't be talking about this. I mean, this is Trump desensitization syndrome again, where why in the world? Why in the world is this even being talked about seriously by conservatives? And the precedent that it would set, no matter what restriction you put on it, will be devastating. Because the next time a Democrat is in office, and it might be very soon, especially if they have control of of both houses of Congress, they're going to declare a national emergency on anything they want. We're seeing it here in California where the hypocrisy is... It knows no bounds. I mean, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is declaring arbitrarily uh, three years after the the voters voted in favor of the death penalty that uh, the death penalty here doesn't exist. And liberals are cheering him for that. Uh, So it's both sides are a bunch of damn hypocrites. Uh, You know, the, the, the rules, the law, the Constitution only matter when they benefit you. And that's just disgusting. Some of us actually still believe in principles, but very few of us are like that or in any sense of power, that's for sure. And even those that are end up caving uh, on a regular basis out of cowardice. Uh, one other story that I, I want to talk about because, one, I might have a little bit of insight that's not being talked about in the public. And also, it, it'll, I think, prove that I don't have Trump derangement syndrome like a lot of people accuse me of having. There was a story that a lot of people sent me. Because I'm a, I'm a golfer. I'm a, about a two-handicap golfer. And for the purposes of this story, which is relevant, I've won uh, four club championships in three different clubs across the United States of America. I used to be pretty good, not as good as I used to be. And the reason why this is relevant is because there was a story out this week that Donald Trump, in his uh, Florida club, Trump International Golf Club in West Palm Beach, has on his locker the designation that he was the 2018 men's club champion there. And uh, golf.com did a a whole expose on this because obviously as president of the United States, how the hell did he have time to play in the 2018 men's club championship at Trump International? Well, he didn't. And the story is that he uh, met the actual champion, a guy by the name of Ted Virtue, who is uh, the head of Mid-Ocean Partners, a New York-based investment company, and an avid golfer. Ted Virtue had won the 2008 club championship at Trump's club in West Palm Beach. And Trump essentially uh, said, hey, look, you were lucky to win, uh, but I wasn't playing, so why don't we play a nine-hole match to see who the real champion is? Now, that's absurd right off the bat if it's a real thing uh, because you can't determine a champion in nine holes. And, you know, everyone knows Trump cheats at golf anyway. So, you know, who, who's who's going to call the president on cheating when you're playing in this bogus nine-hole pseudo-club championship match? Well, apparently Trump won. 
How legitimate that is, I have no idea, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He won. Trump is you know, a decent golfer, though it's always hard to tell if you're cheating how good you actually are. But you know, so, so, so Trump, when he won, out of graciousness, told Virtue, hey, look, um, why don't we call it co-champions? Which, again, <laughs> if he's being serious, is— It's just flat-out ridiculous. I mean, that's not the way this works. <laughs> but you, when you own the club and you're president of the United States, I guess you think you can do whatever the hell you want, especially when you, you're not even president. You think of yourself as some sort of king. Uh, but this is the kind of thing a king does, right? So— so the media narrative is that Trump is lying about the fact that he's the 2018 men's club champion. And, you know, to a certain extent he is. But let me give you the, a scenario that's very different. And I don't know what the truth of this is, but here's a scenario that also makes sense that does not include Trump derangement syndrome, where it's not nearly as nefarious. So, so Trump meets the club champ. He's a president of the United States. In his mind, playing golf with him is an honor, right? Okay? So he's honoring the club champ. He doesn't have time for 18 holes because he's busy. You know, I don't know why he's got to, you know, watch Fox News Channel. So he's, you know, he only has time for nine holes. And, he's, and he gives the club champ this honor of playing nine holes for, with him. But he wants there to be something at stake. So he, he just puts out there, hey, this will be for the real club championship since I wasn't around to play in it. And they play, Trump wins, and then he jokingly says, well, why don't we call it co-champions? And then somebody at the club who's sucking, let's be clear, is an employee of Donald Trump, sucks up to him by putting the, the little plaque on his locker that says he's the 2018 club champion. That's, that's how this works, folks. I doubt very seriously. Now, if he did, there's a problem with his level of narcissism and delusion. But I doubt very seriously that Donald Trump instructed anybody to put the plaque on his locker saying that he's the actual 2018 men's club champion. Not co-champion, but club champion. I doubt that. Now, if that happened, I will retract my entire statement. And he's, he's... dangerously delusional and narcissistic way beyond even what Barack Obama was. But there's a scenario there that's actually all in good fun. And in a weird way, in his mind, he's honoring the club champ at his course. So, you know, I try to be as fair as I possibly can in all things. And I think I just did so there. As is always the case when we end the Individual One podcast, I give an updated percentage on the chances of Donald Trump being uh, removed from office or not finishing his first term. Those are way down based upon the words of Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff. So I'm going to put that now as only 6%. I think there's only a 6% chance at this point Donald Trump does not uh, finish his first term in office. I'll keep his reelection number at the same number, which it has been just about since we began the Individual One podcast, which is at 40 percent. Again, just to reiterate, a lot of that is going to depend on whether or not Joe Biden gets into the race. There are indications this week that he is going to get in, but it's certainly not beneficial yet, and anything is possible. That'll do it for episode number 12 of the Individual One podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Podcast. Pod. That's individual, the number one pod. Uh, my name is John Ziegler. Until our next episode, which will be coming up Sunday morning, Los Angeles, California time this coming week. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This is the Global Story Network.